My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The world's top doctors and top researchers and top scientists have been somewhat preoccupied over the past 18 months, and that is understandable. But as the third wave of COVID recedes, at least in Canada, and vaccinations take hold, some very smart people will soon have more time to investigate something very scary. Public health officials in Canada are closely monitoring a mysterious brain disease that has emerged out of New Brunswick. Now, it's not known what is causing the disorder or where it even came from. In a cluster of more than 40 cases have already been confirmed in the Atlantic province. Five people sadly have died. Thus far, whatever is happening in New Brunswick is really hard to explain, to identify, to treat, or to prevent. The numbers right now may be small, the cases may be localized, but the symptoms are devastating and can be fatal. So what do we know about this brain disease? How much do we still need to understand? How concerned should we be right now? And how has COVID-19 impacted our ability to get the answers we need on medical mysteries like this one quickly? Because if there's one thing we should have learned from recent history, it's probably not to wait and see about stuff like this. Jordan Heath-Rawlings, this is The Big Story. Amanda Coletta covers Canada for The Washington Post. Hey, Amanda. Hi, Jordan. Can you begin maybe by telling me about Alier Marrero and what he does? Sure. So Dr. Alier Marrero is a neurologist at a hospital in Moncton, New Brunswick, and he is now sort of the lead person who is treating people in this cluster Um, and also sort of leading the investigation into what is causing it. When you say cluster, maybe back up a bit and tell us what's happening out there. What are they looking at? So officials in New Brunswick and federal officials have identified what is being called the New Brunswick Cluster of Neurological Syndrome of Unknown Cause, Um, These are cases of a sort of mysterious neurological syndrome, and we can discuss sort of the symptoms shortly, Um, but the cases are mostly in the Moncton area and the Acadian Peninsula, though officials haven't identified to the public which specific towns or, or areas have cases. So far, there are 48 cases under investigation. Six people have died, though there is still some testing being done to determine sort of definitively whether this mysterious syndrome was the cause of those deaths. The youngest person in the cluster is 18. The oldest is 85. The cases are split evenly between men and women. 
The symptoms for most of the people in the cluster started in 2018, 2019, and 2020, but at least one case was identified sort of uh, retrospectively last year, and that person sort of had symptoms well before that. So what are the symptoms of this neurological disorder? So many of the symptoms are similar to those seen in patients with Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which we can also talk about in more detail. And in fact, it was a surveillance system that monitors for Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease that helped to detect the cluster in the first place. Um, But in any event, Dr. Marrero sort of outlined a constellation of symptoms, and he said that they're occurring in people who were previously healthy, highly functional, highly stable, Um, and it usually begins with sort of atypical depression, irritability, and anxiety. Those patients then go on to develop sleeping disorders, and this can include insomnia that's so severe that the patient stops sleeping altogether or sleeps only a few nights a week even with medication. Others have no trouble falling asleep. The problem is waking them. There's trouble with memory, disorientation, uh, blurry vision, trouble with depth perception, coordination, balance. Many of the patients experience hallucinations of various forms. So there are auditory hallucinations where people hear um, people or, or animals that aren't present. There are tactile hallucinations where people feel like they have insects crawling on them. And Dr. Marrero also noted that a number of the patients have these terrifying hallucinatory dreams that leave them afraid to sort of go to sleep to begin with. Another symptom is these sort of uncontrollable and frequent muscle jerks. They're so bad that sometimes the partner of the patient will have to sort of get out of bed at night and and go sleep somewhere else. And what's particularly troubling for Dr. Marrero is that he has also seen these um, jerks occur in people who are in palliative care. So really quite sick on quite, um, Mm. you know, high dosages of medication. Some of them are they can't talk, but they continue to have these um, these jerks, and he's prescribed treatments to them that he might also use in patients with Parkinson's disease, and they seem to have no effect. There's muscle atrophy and weight loss that is both rapid and unexplained, dry skin, brittle nails, teeth chattering, some people lose entire clumps of hair. Um, wow. Some patients also experience echoalia, which is um, they repeat over and over the same words and phrases. So Dr. Marrero will ask them a question and the patients will repeat back to him that question over and over. And it's quite frustrating for them because they don't want to do this, but they can't stop it. Um, And there's also another symptom that's pretty devastating for the patients and their families, which is Capgra delusion. It's um, a false belief that loved ones or caregivers, people who are known to them, have been replaced by imposters. So some patients deteriorate really quickly. Others are stable for longer periods. It's not clear to the doctors why this, why some are stable for longer. Um, and I guess one thing I wanted to note is that, you know, Dr. Marrero sort of said the, the thing that's really hard for the 
doctors and the patients and their families is that the pain isn't just physical. There's also these neuropsychiatric symptoms and they're, you know, sort of tough to treat with medication. And it's an awful syndrome for anyone, regardless of their age. But, you know, the youngest patient in this cluster is 18. And for some of the younger patients, it's sort of beyond imagination. Amanda, that is a terrifying list of symptoms. Like just one or two of those would be really scary. That's right. And um, Michael Strong, who is a neurologist who heads the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, he's helping out with the investigation. Um, He said that, you know, if you look at the list of the symptoms and you pick three or four of them, you can say, okay, you know, these symptoms are common to XYZ disease. But when you look at this whole list, the constellation of symptoms, that's something that he hasn't seen before. You mentioned earlier that it was similar to Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Do you want to just fill our listeners in on, you know, what that is and why those similarities pop up? Sure. So Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is a rare brain disorder that is thought to occur around the world in humans and animals. And when we're talking about humans, we're talking about one, maybe two cases per one million people each year worldwide. And um, CJD is the most common prion disease, and it's sometimes used as an umbrella term to capture all prion diseases. Uh, Prion diseases are rare, fatal, rapidly degenerative brain disorders. So most people with CJD die within a year of the onset of symptoms. Some other prion diseases that listeners might be familiar with are um, variant CJD, which um, can be acquired by consuming meat that's been infected with mad cow disease, for instance, or chronic wasting disease, which you sometimes see in deer and elk. And essentially, prion diseases are caused by abnormal prion proteins um, in the brain that basically misfold and then they accumulate and they infect healthy brain proteins, causing them to misfold and accumulate and infect other healthy brain brain proteins. Um, and eventually sort of whole clusters of brain cells can be killed off. Under a microscope, um, if you look at the brain of a person or an animal with CJD, they kind of look like um, sponges with little holes in them. There's a bunch of causes. So some are subtypes of CJD are genetic, others occur more spontaneously, and some can be transmitted infectiously. So, you know, by consuming the meat of an animal that's been infected, or if um, someone has a, a brain surgery who has CJD and the tools aren't, or the instruments aren't sterilized properly, and then they're used on another patient, then that could be one way of transmitting CJD. And the symptoms include sort of difficulty with balance and coordination, um, dizziness, vision problems, hallucinations, anxiety, trouble sleeping, depression, muscle spasms, memory loss, um, and the inability to speak. And most people in the sort of later stages can be bedridden as well. And presumably um, doctors have tested Uh, the patient's suffering from this syndrome for CJD, and it's negative. And so where do they go after that? Do they just not know what this is? And how do you go about finding uh, an explanation? So the doctors have um, autopsied three brains of people who passed away in the cluster. 
And doing a brain autopsy is sort of the best way to confirm a diagnosis of CJD or another prion disorder. And so far, those autopsies have shown no hint of CJD or another prion, another known prion disorder. But um, Dr. Strong at the Canadian Institutes for Health Research said they're still doing some molecular testing just to be able to rule out CJD and other known prion disorders 100% for good. Um, And so now they're really sort of trying to leave no stone unturned. There are a number of theories. Um, One of them is that this is an unknown or novel prion disorder. And then the other sort of grouping is that this is something that is caused by an environmental toxin. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You mentioned earlier when you described uh, the people who are suffering from this that it's a pretty wide array. Is there anything um, that they have in common besides like a loose geographic uh, connection? That's one of the things that the investigators are probing. So Dr. Strong said, you know, one of the things that they'll look to do is try and identify three or four cardinal symptoms that are sort of common to everyone in the cluster and then to go from there and see if there is, you know, if it tells you something about which part of the brain is most affected and then that might tell you, uh, might lead you down one path over another. But at this point, they're sort of kind of in the early stages of the investigation and everything is on the table. This is maybe uh, asking you to kind of use your own opinion a bit, but as you talk to doctors and scientists about this, like, are they freaked out by this? It sounds pretty freaky, especially, you know, when you use the term, maybe this is a novel uh, prion disease. Uh, We've heard about novel diseases recently and, you know, it's scary. Uh, How do they feel about it? Are they worried? I think they're shocked (laughs) that this is something that is happening. the the cluster was detected by the CJD surveillance system, which is operated by the Public Health Agency of Canada. And Dr. Michael Coulthart, who heads the system, has said that the system, in his experience, has never detected a cluster of CJD. So you can imagine how unusual it is for it to have picked up a cluster of something that is not CJD and that has no unknown cause. Um, Dr. Marrero, you know, he said that he tries often to sound an optimistic note with family members and patients um, because, you know, he thinks hope is better than fear. And he sort of said, look, around this time last year, what we were hearing from public health officials in Canada and around the world was that if there was going to be a safe and effective coronavirus vaccine, it, it would likely come sometime in the spring of 2021 and now here we are in the spring of 2021 and not only do we have one safe 
and effective vaccine approved by Health Canada. We have several of them and we got them way earlier than we thought we would. So he sort of pointed at that as, as a reason for optimism. And Dr. Coulthart uh, from the CJD surveillance system said that since the existence of the cluster has been made public, there's been a lot of um, interest in reaching out from scientists and doctors from around the world. And so he's hopeful that with more sort of eyes on it, they'll be able to determine a cause um, more quickly. At the same time, you know, doing the sort of investigations that you would need to do to determine if the cause is an environmental toxin is something that could take years. Have those doctors developed any uh, treatments for this at all? Um, do people ever get better or do they just sort of continue to deteriorate? I know you've mentioned that that several have died, but obviously uh, dozens more have lived. There isn't a cure because they don't know what's causing it. And so the best that they can right. do right now is sort of treat some of the symptoms. So if someone has a sleep disorder, there might be medications that they can prescribe to treat um, to, to treat that. So you're really dealing sort of with the individual symptoms, um, which, you know, might bring some relief, but in some cases, the mm-hmm. traditional treatments aren't even working. So far, we've been talking about doctors and scientists. Has this come on the radar of any level of government at all? And what have they said? Um, So the cluster's existence um, was noted in a memo from public health officials in New Brunswick to local physicians in March, in early March of this year. The public sort of learned about it after that, after um, Radio Canada and the CBC obtained that memo. And the amount of information that the provincial government has provided about the cluster um, hasn't been very much, which has kind of frustrated some families. On the other hand, pu- what public health officials would say is, we are telling you what we know, and right now we don't know very much. Um, but some family members have sort of complained that, you know, public health officials were supposed to get in touch with them several months ago to sort of, um, you know, conduct questionnaires and the types of interviews that you would need to do to sort of get to the bottom of this. And so far, there's been radio silence. They have set up a website which gives, you know, basic details about the cluster. Um, And they recently set up a a clinic that will help to treat patients in the cluster and people who are maybe suspected of of having the syndrome. Um, You know, this is all occurring in the middle of a pandemic, which has had some impact on just how quickly these investigations can take place. That's the next thing I was going to ask is just how many resources are there right now to throw at this? We're talking about public health resources, which are obviously hugely in demand. Right. And New Brunswick is a a relatively small province. So, you know, it doesn't have the same levels of public health resources as a province like Ontario, for instance. And we've seen how how easily um, they can come under strain, uh, you know, during the pandemic. So every person that I spoke to outside of the government of New Brunswick um, has basically said that the pandemic has impacted their work. Um, And, you know, it's worth noting New Brunswick, like much of Atlanta, Canada, has fared far better than many of the provinces to their west at containing the coronavirus. 
Um, and there's a number of reasons for how it's impacted, for why it's impacting their work. So if you think back to, you know, 2020, the early days and weeks and months of the of the pandemic, many provinces and territories, including New Brunswick, um, temporarily put on hold or canceled a number of procedures, including diagnostic procedures like MRIs, um, x-rays, CAT scans, and spinal taps. And um, one of the ways that you can try and diagnose uh, CJD and other prion disorders while a person is alive is by testing their cerebral spinal fluid for elevated levels of certain protein markers. So you need to be able to do those spinal taps. So that kind of was one delay. Dr. Marrero also said that a number of his patients said that they'd had symptoms and had sort of wavered on whether or not to seek medical attention or go to the hospital because they were worried about contracting COVID-19 there. And then the other sort of aspect of this is that you really need boots on the ground to do these types of epidemiological investigations. So um, a number of the doctors that I spoke to said that they believe that the patients are being exposed or infected with whatever it is that is causing the syndrome approximately two years before they begin to exhibit symptoms. So you're really needing to probe and, um, you know, mine through two years of someone's life. And you need to interview them. You need to interview their families. You need to interview their neighbors. And it's kind of difficult to do these types of interviews in person in the middle of a pandemic in which there's an infectious respiratory virus spreading and it spreads really easily when you're in close contact with other people. You know, epidemiologists will want to know about their diets. You know, what did you eat? When did you eat it? Where did you eat it? Um, Their travel histories. Where did you go? When did you go? How long were you there? What did you do while you were there? Uh, You know, have you been in any lakes or rivers or bodies of water in the last you know, however many years, for how long, which ones? Um, Have you had any contact with animals? Do you fish? Do you hunt? When? Where? What did you, you know, what did you catch? Um, So this is really sort of complex stuff. And then the other aspect of it is that they'll also want to be testing the environment. So testing soil, testing water, and so on, and pandemic restrictions in New Brunswick, which include sort of travel restrictions and then quarantine restrictions, have made it difficult to get some of these people into the province as quickly as you might want them to be there. Um, And so now more people are allegedly arriving, but still not in the numbers that um, are desirable. So I have to ask this question, especially because you just kind of described the impact the pandemic's having on it. And I know all our listeners will get mad if I don't ask it. Do we have any evidence that this is spreading? Um, Are case numbers increasing more rapidly? Do we have any evidence that it can transmit human to human, et cetera? That's um, a great question, and there is no answer. (laughs) Um, Great. (laughs) (laughs) um, Dr. Marrero basically said we can't rule out that it's not contagious because we don't know what's causing it. Um, And he said, what we can say is that it's probably, if it is contagious, it doesn't seem like it's as contagious as the coronavirus, which, um, you know, because otherwise we'd have 
more cases than we do. Um, but he has seen sort of an increase in the number of patients year over year that are presenting with these symptoms. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is um, spreading from, from human to human. Without knowing the cause, it's really difficult to determine if it's contagious, what you need to do to protect yourself from it. So what happens next? Uh, New Brunswick tries to stay safe while the scientists hopefully figure out what this is, or doctors hopefully figure out an effective treatment. Uh, what are we waiting for? Um, that seems like that's really the only way forward, um, trying to sort of really narrow down the cardinal symptoms and getting people where they need to be just to start to do these types of um, investigations. Amanda, thank you so much for explaining this to us. Now I have something else to worry about, but it is also um, fascinating and obviously a story people should keep their eye on. Thanks for having me. And um, yes, it's definitely difficult for the families and um, the patients and, and, you know, the doctors who are treating them as well. Amanda Coletta of The Washington Post. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find all of our episodes on there. You can talk to us anytime on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can write us long essays or just short FU emails at TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And as always, we are in your favorite podcast players in Apple, in Google, in Stitcher, in Spotify, in Amazon Music, and... We're on all your smart speakers. Just ask them to play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.